Mark 6, 1 through 29. Jesus left that place and came to his hometown. His disciples followed him on the Sabbath. He began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were surprised. Where did this man get all this? What's this wisdom he's been given? What about the powerful acts accomplished through him? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't he Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? They were repulsed by him and fell into sin. Jesus said to them, Prophets are honored everywhere except in their own hometowns, among their relatives, and in their own households. He wasn't able to do any miracles there, except that he placed his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He was appalled by their disbelief. Then Jesus came through the surrounding villages teaching. He called for the twelve and sent them out in pairs. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the journey except a walking stick, no bread, no bags, and no money in their belts. He told them to wear sandals, but not to put on two shirts. He said, whatever house you enter, remain there until you leave that place. If a place doesn't welcome you or listen to you, as you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a witness against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should change their hearts and lives. They cast out many demons and they anointed many sick people with olive oil and healed them. Herod the king heard about these things because the name of Jesus had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and this is why miraculous powers are at work through him. Others were saying, he is Elijah. Still others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the ancient prophets. But when Herod heard these rumors, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised to life. He said this because Herod himself had arranged to have John arrested and put in prison because of Herodias, the wife of Herod's brother, Philip. Herod had married her, but John told Herod, it's against the law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias had it in for John. She wanted to kill him, but she couldn't. This was because Herod respected John. He regarded him as a righteous and holy person, so he protected him. John's words greatly confused Herod, yet he enjoyed listening to him. Finally, the time was right. It was one of Herod's birthdays when he had prepared a feast for his high-ranking officials and military officers in Galilee's leading residence. Herod's daughter Herodias came in and danced, thrilling Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the young woman, Ask me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. Then he swore to her, Whatever you ask I will give to you, even as much as half of my kingdom. She left the banquet hall and said to her mother, What should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, Herodias replied. Hurrying back to the ruler, she made her request. I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a plate right this minute. Although the king was upset because of his solemn pledge and his guests, he didn't want to refuse her. So he ordered a guard to bring John's head. The guard went to the prison, cut off John's head, brought his head on a plate, and gave it to the young woman, and she gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard what had happened, they came and took his dead body and laid it in a tomb. The word of the Lord. I would be remiss if I didn't take a break from our series in Mark to speak a little bit about the situation we now found ourselves in. 
I've been typically recording these sermons about two weeks before you hear them. I did this partly because if I do not stay ahead of myself, well, then procrastination will come and bite me. And also, well, you never know what will happen and you'll need two weeks of content. And this week, this week I definitely needed that buffer. I really didn't know how to begin this week or really even how to be. Our bodies crave many things and one of the things that we do crave is a rhythm. We breathe in, we breathe out. We fall into our schedules and routines. We have our days of the week and our hours of our day. We go to sleep and we wake up. In the span of a week, it seems like all of this is gone. It's vapor, mist, wind, breath. And as some of us go into work fearing what we could catch, as some of us try to figure out how to homeschool our own children, as some of us try to figure out how to use the new video conferencing app that the IT guy said would just work, we are stuck out of rhythm. We are disjointed and out of sync. And well, for me, I feel overwhelmed. Like I know that I should be doing something and that something is important, but I don't know what that something is. It is so interesting on how I made such small things into an identity of who I am. I let these rhythms of my life define me, and once they were thrown off, and anxiety began to, and then once they were thrown off, anxiety began to creep in. And well, how it worked out for me? Well, obviously it was toilet paper. So as the pictures began to flood in of the hoarders and resellers going to store and buying everything out. I immediately went around the house and took stock. I centralized our toilet paper supply from all the bathrooms, vanities, and hall closets. I need to know how much we had. We had six rolls of the double-sized type, more than enough. I let out a sigh of relief, and then then a doubt began to creep into the back of my mind. Is this really enough? I would spend the next week thinking about this. Do we really have enough? Should I just try to go to the store early? I started researching when do certain stores get their supplies in. I actually was kept up at night, wondering if I needed to wake up early to go to a store. And anxiety sometimes has a way of hiding in plain sight. I wasn't nervous about toilet paper. I was nervous that I didn't have control over anything going on in my life. I was anxious about my life, and my brain decided that toilet paper would be the one thing that I could control. If I could figure out toilet paper, then I could figure out what to do next, and then next, and then next. I could find my own rhythm again. But that's not true. If not this, then something else. My brain would continue to keep finding something to be anxious about until I came to grips with the underlying issue, until I just admitted to myself that I was just anxious until I confessed that I was scared. I was scared for my friends who might lose their jobs. I was scared for my brother and sister who both work in the medical field. I was scared for my own parents who could get sick. I was scared about my own job and what it will look like for the next couple of months. I was scared about getting groceries and supplies as everyone else around me panicked. I was scared about being a pastor during this time. It's not like seminary trained me on how to deal with a viral pandemic that has a crippling effect on our economy. I needed to admit that I was scared. I needed to confess it. I needed to embrace my fear and let it become a part of me. If I didn't acknowledge it, my brain would keep trying to figure out ways to deal with it. I needed to admit to God 
like that I was in need and it was God that I needed. Not to take oh not to take this away from me, but rather to help me deal with it. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. I'm not asking to leave this valley. What I am asking for is for God to walk with me, to walk with my friends, to walk with my brother and sister, to walk with my family, to walk with my parents, to walk with my neighbors, my community, my city, and my country, to walk with those who have to go to work still, to walk with those who are in quarantine, to walk with those who have no place to go, to walk with all of us. Breathe in, breathe out, and try to find my rhythm again. To know that God is with me, to know that God is with you, and to know that God is with us. Breathe in, breathe out, and try to find our rhythm again. Well, back to we go to finding ourselves in Mark. There is an old saying, you can never go home again, and it finds its roots in a novel with the same title by Thomas Wolfe, written around in the 1940s. The novel is about an author who writes a book about his upbringing in his hometown. And after the author's novel becomes a bestseller, he goes back to his old hometown to find people that were upset with him and how they were represented. Things were different than how he remembered it, or at least how they remembered him remembering it. I believe this to be true. There is something powerful about memory and how it can be a both a blessing and a curse. How two people can remember the same experience and yet have very different recollections of it. We find ourselves with Jesus performing a resurrection and are quickly swept up in him returning to his hometown where he began his teachings and people are taken aback by him. They remember Jesus from when he was a kid, from when he was a teenager. They remember him playing with his brothers and sisters in the streets with the other kids. Who does he think he is now? How could he be doing this? I remember when you were just this tall. I remember when your mom and dad brought you back from that major. I remember when you were just a young whippersnapper and now, now you say you have the power to make the lame walk, to give sight to the blind, to heal the sick, to even bring the dead back to life. Yeah, sure you do. You spent too much time in the city and not enough time around folks like us. You're just like your brothers and your sisters. You're not something special. And this is when Jesus as a prophet is not accepted in his hometown, which is to say it's hard to do ministry in a place where people know you well because they aren't open to you. Their past knowledge prevents them from seeing of the present person. And this is why ministry can be hard sometimes, even today, even for us. It's hard to break out of past mold sometimes to do ministry, to tell people the changes you have had in your own life, how God has worked on you and through you. It's hard because we all carry conceptions of ourselves and other people around us. And just as much as we don't want people to judge us on who we were, and rather judge us for who we are now, we end up doing this to a lot of people around us. We tend to let their past get in the way of who they are now. Now, I'm not saying we forget about past hurts or toxic people. But what I am saying is we need to be careful to not let how people were get in the way of seeing people and how they are now. Least we fall into this place as a people in Jesus' hometown. 
Plus, I remember when I told one of my cousins that I decided to go into ministry and she laughed and her response was, you, but you used to curse like a sailor. The scripture then shifts into this place where Jesus now sends out the disciples to start their ministries. This is an important part of the discipling process and the disciple and rabbi relationship. This is what every disciple has been working towards to eventually go out and be as Jesus is, the teacher, the rabbi, to others. Once again, they were to follow Jesus so closely that the dust of Christ would cover them, and now they are being sent out by the rabbi to see how well they were covered. And whenever the disciples are sent out, we always tend to think about the Great Commission in Matthew. That is, at the end of Matthew. Well, it seems like there is no other option than the Great Commission when sending people out. They were supposed to go out and baptize the nations. But here in Mark, it happens a little bit different, doesn't it? Jesus says, well, you have seen what I have done. You have heard what I have taught. Now go out and do likewise. Go out and let me see what you have learned. This is often overlooked when we talked about evangelism in the Western church. And that's because, well, there are things here in what Jesus is saying that the Western church would like to ignore. First, Jesus makes a point to send them out two by two, which is to say that they weren't supposed to do this alone. It seems like we as a church like to ignore this rule. We like to tell people to go do things alone, that if you're going to do ministry, if you have a calling, you should just go do it, even if it's by yourself, even though we have plenty of examples of how harmful that is, how it leads to burnout, how it leads to bad situation because there's no accountability. We have plenty of examples, especially in our current culture, where if another person was in the room, if another person was there to help shoulder the ministry, so many people's ministry could have gone further or could have been done better or not hurt so many people. We are not meant to do ministry just by ourselves. We are meant to do this together. And I've seen way too many churches put way too much power in one person or left one individual to shoulder a whole ministry. Jesus says here at the very beginning of sending people out, this is not how it was supposed to be. We are meant to do this together. Next, he tells them not to take anything with them. No fancy gadgets, no picket signs, no Bible tracts. Just take what you need and God will open the doors for you that you need. See, there's a certain struggle that we have all confronted when confronted with ministry. And that is, it shouldn't be not about me, but about more of those who I'm going to. It should not about be about the fancy things that I can bring to this situation, but rather it's about being a good enough person, a loving enough person, that the other will invite you into their home and into their lives and to their table. It isn't about relying on yourself to do ministry, but relying on the others you're going to do ministry to. I do believe that this is seeking hospitality and not creating hostility that has been less that has been lost sometimes by the Western Church. I want to say that again. I do believe that this seeking of hospitality and not creating hostility has been lost sometimes by the Western Church. 
We have focused so long on the whole, let me love you, and the way that I determine what loving you looks like, that we have missed the stories of the other, the one of who Jesus wants us to go to. It is so often, including stories that we have read, where Jesus offered healing before he asked for repentance. Jesus often offered healing before he asked for repentance. We should always be seeking this hospitality, this loving, instead of creating hostility. But what happens when we are met with hostility? We should take some wise words from the 21st century prophet Taylor Swift and just shake it off. How many times as Christians have we failed to heed the wise words of Miss Swift, not only her messages of recognizing love lost, but also in this way? The failure to recognize that our own salvation is not dependent upon saving others. I'm going to say that again. The failure to recognize that our own salvation is not dependent upon saving others. Because I believe that this is a lie that is a root to the anxious generation of so many Christians that we believe our salvation is dependent upon saving others. And if I'm not going out to save others, and if I'm not saving others, then my salvation is in question. And Jesus is making it very clear that our salvation is not dependent upon saving others. What Jesus actually expresses here to his disciples is not everyone will be ready to receive your message. And when they don't accept you, move on. Shake the dust. Shake it off. And you got to remember being covered in the dust of your rabbi. There's something special here. What he's trying to say about dust is don't carry their hostility with you. Don't let the hostile dust cover you. Shake it off and move on. Don't go to war with them. Don't make laws against them. Don't Picket their funerals, don't blow up their buildings, don't commit physical, emotional, or spiritual acts of violence against them. We have sometimes lost this in our faith as Christians. We have lifted up martyrdom as some prize, and in that we change the gospel to be about us and not about them. We have shifted that saving people is more about me saving you than it is trusting that God can save you. How does a farmer know his seed will grow? We plant the seeds and wait for God to send the rains. Perhaps that the hostility is not is a message for you to move on because God will send somebody else. Just because you're not there does not mean that God is not. Jesus stresses this to his disciples as he just had to leave his hometown and shake the dust. Just as he had to leave the town outside Gerasene and shake the dust. He's calling us to let go and let God do what God is going to do. To shake it off. To shake that dust off and move on. Do not take on a mantle of hostility, but move on. And we know then what happened, right? The disciples did as Jesus called them to do, and it worked. 
They saved lives. They healed the sick. They casted out demons. Hearts were changed. When we make it about Christ and not about us, the world around us begins to change. And because of this, the gospel writer puts in his like mini flashback. King Herod hears about what is happening, the disciples going out and changing the world, and he thought that he actually had stopped this from happening. He killed John the Baptist. That was John the Baptist who was calling in and heralding in the coming of the Messiah. How could this be happening? How could Elijah, who was supposed to, once again, bring in, prepare the way, still have the Messiah coming? How could he become back? Has the prophet been resurrected? And what then we get this story that sounds like a more medieval Game of Thrones episode. King Herod marries Herodus, Herodias, sorry, Herod's brother's wife. John the Baptist says, like, hey, you shouldn't be doing that, which angers Herodias, but Herod respected slash feared John the Baptist, so he would not act against him, and then the Game of Thrones begins. John Baptist ends up dead because this is a little bit of foreshadowing of what happens when you speak truth to power. When you speak truth to power, you might die. But that's the thing about truth. You actually can't kill it. What happening is here is parallel to what the disciples are going to be doing. When you're speaking truth to power, the idea of what John was doing, the truth of what John was doing, it will continue beyond his death. And that is what scares Herod. I'm often reminded of the quote from Alan Moore's V for Vendetta. There is no flesh or blood within this cloak to kill. There is only an idea, and ideas are bulletproof. And this is where we find ourselves at the end of this sermon. Disciples are being set out, and in that time we hear the cost of what it meant to herald in the kingdom of God. We also see the idea of who Christ is, is well, bulletproof. That it continues beyond the killing of those who are bringing the message. And it, that is the beginning to scare those in power. And as we know that Christ has died, resurrected, and ascended, but it has not stopped those carrying the message forward. We continue to carry the banner high. And there may be those who doubt what we can do those who knew us before. And there also may be difficulties when we, greet, uh, when we go to people and they greet us with hostility. But we shake the dust. We do not let that define who we are. And we keep moving on. Because just because we are not there does not mean that God is not there. And we will continue to speak truth to power, to continue the message that Christ has given us. And yes, please remember to wash your hands. Amen.